If you would please take your Bibles and open to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. Here in Nehemiah 13, the last chapter, we find that Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem. He had gone originally and stayed for 12 years and then goes back to the service of the king. And now we don't know how long afterwards he has returned to Jerusalem. And in his absence, things have deteriorated. Um, Corruption and abuse has developed. There is neglect of the priests. We find, as we will see today, neglect of the Sabbath and intermarriage with foreign women. Um, The prophet Malachi also denounced these evils, as we will see uh, in a few moments. Nehemiah in chapter 13 institutes reforms as he returns to Jerusalem. This is what this entire chapter is about. Last week we looked at two specific areas, and that is, um, they come under the heading of temple reforms. The first has to do with the fact that an Ammonite, Tobiah, is actually living in the temple grounds, which is completely unacceptable. And he's living in the room that is set aside for the tithes and offerings, the things that are to take care of the Levites and the singers. Nehemiah throws his stuff out and cleans the room and then puts the tithes back in. The second issue under temple reforms may be related to the first, and that is people had stopped tithing. They had stopped giving their tithes. And as, as I mentioned, they may have done that because they're like, well, wait, why would I give my tithes when there's a pagan living in there? And for all we know, he's dipping into the till, so to speak. But they had quit giving their tithes, which meant that the Levites and the singers, they have to live. They'd gone back home and were working their farms and... This is not the way things are supposed to be. So, the tithes are brought into the, into the storerooms. New administrators are put in place. And they are made responsible to make sure that the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers are taken care of. Today we come to the second set and the third set of reforms. Begin reading in verse number 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, and figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that God, our God, brought all all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates, so that no load could be brought in, brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. 
The story is pretty straightforward. Uh, on his return, Nehemiah notices he discovers that the Jews in Jerusalem are not keeping the Sabbath. In fact, they are profaning it. The NIV uses the word desecrating. And they are doing it in several ways. First of all, they're working on the Sabbath, treading the wine presses. Secondly, they are selling on the Sabbath by, or allowing others to do so. And they are buying on the Sabbath. I mean, you can't have people selling if there aren't people buying. Nehemiah warns them against selling food on the Sabbath. And here we should be reminded of Israel's experience in the wilderness. They gathered manna six days a week. Do you remember that? When they, and they couldn't keep it overnight because it would spoil. So every day they would collect except on the sixth day. And on the sixth day they would collect enough for two days. And miraculously it would not spoil that night, but it would keep for the next day. And we talked about this several weeks ago. To me this is a classic example of cosmic personalism. That is, this isn't like a, a natural miracle if there is such a thing. Like, oh yeah, the food is just provided every day. No, it is provided by God in a very personal way so that if you collect on Monday, it will not last till Tuesday. Okay? And there's a very strong thing here. It doesn't stay overnight, except on the sixth night. It does. And the point of this is that Israel was to rely on God that he, in fact, would, would provide for them. And the Jews in Nehemiah's time are completely blowing this. They're completely desecrating the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah rebukes them. And he reminds them that this is one of the reasons that they're in the mess that they're in, that they're exiles because their forefathers had broken the Sabbath, had been taken into exile, They've been there for 70 years. They were there 70 years and now they're coming back and their situation is really quite pathetic. It's because they desecrated the Sabbath. Nehemiah has the gates closed. He puts his own men there to make sure people don't come in. But some people think, well, if we just stay outside the gate, you know, maybe someone will come out and buy. And he's like, you do this again and I will lay hands on you. Then he puts the Levites in charge of the gates, which to me, I don't want to make too much of it, means that the Sabbath and commerce are not simply economic issues, but they are religious issues as well. This is why the Levites are put in charge. So what is the big deal, seriously, about the Sabbath? It is the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Let me read to you from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In the Deuteronomy account of the Ten Commandments, this is added, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. We've talked about this before, but of the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, the one regarding the Sabbath, is the longest by far of any of the commandments. And I would say in many ways it is the most difficult of the Ten Commandments for us to seek to apply to our lives today. our calendar just doesn't seem to match up with the idea of having a day of rest. The fourth commandment is based on the reality that God created the world. That he is the creator. He and he alone. Uh, 
We are told that on the seventh day, God had finished, he had completed his work of creating, and so he ceased. And the word in Hebrew is sabbat. It's the root for Sabbath. He stopped. It is not a rest of inactivity. It's like, well, I'm done. But rather, it is that of achievement. He had completed the work, uh, the six days of creating the world. What does it mean to rest, though? I think in answering this, we need to recognize that our rest is not the same as God's rest. Uh, For God, rest is a testimony of his independence. He created the world out of nothing. It is dependent on him. He is not dependent on it. So for God to rest on the Sabbath, I think, shows his independence. For us, it is quite the reverse. Resting in God shows our dependence upon him. How are we supposed to survive if we don't work seven days a week? How was Israel supposed to survive? And by the way, there wasn't only the seventh day, there was the seventh year. How, how, what are you going to live on in that seventh year if in fact you haven't planted and you cannot harvest a crop? What is the Sabbath about? Well, it is intended to be an intermission. And the creation week is in fact the pattern, a sign of the fact that man is subordinate to God. We are to work for six days. In our culture, it's usually five days, and we have two days off. Um, And then we are to rest. I don't think we're big on rest as modern people. And you you read, you see things on the news about we're not getting enough sleep, we're not getting enough rest. Um, Rest is important. And if we doubt that, we need to go back to the Old Testament, which many people are loath to do. They don't want to do that. But go back and look at the examples. There's a story that is told in the book of Numbers of someone who was collecting sticks on the Sabbath day to make a fire. And do you know the story? He was brought and they put him in seclusion to ask God, you know, what should we, this guy broke the Sabbath, what should we do? And you know what God said? Kill him. Death penalty for breaking the Sabbath, which to us seems a bit extreme. It's, it's a far worse thing of, you know, like spanking your child if they don't take a nap. You need to take a nap. I don't want to. Spank the child. Uh, God seems to be sort of this tyrant of a parent. But the reality is we do need rest. But when we rest, we acknowledge that we are dependent upon God. And that's something I think we easily forget and sometimes something we are not willing to acknowledge. Because who will take care of us? Who will protect us? How will we earn a living? God will take care of us. That's what the Sabbath is all about. We are to rest and trust in God. The question comes up for us, because we now live after the New Testament, is Sunday the same day as the Sabbath? Is Sunday supposed to be a day of rest? Um, No. I think the purpose of the Lord's Day, Sunday, is it is to be a day of worship, a day in which we come together and worship God. So the Sabbath, although there was a time of worship in that, was stopping your work, Whereas the Lord's Day, it is in fact a time of worship. And I would argue if you look at the New Testament with the slaves, many of them did not have Sunday off. 
So it's not as though they could say to their masters, hey, it's a day of rest, I can't work. No, but it could be a day of worship. And we find that the early church, Sunday nights oftentimes, because that's when they weren't working, that's when they would gather, but that was a day of worship. So the Sabbath and the Lord's Day aren't necessarily the same. Um, And I think it's important for us to see that. Um, So what about the Sabbath? Do we have Sabbath and the Lord's Day? Do we take Saturday off because it's the seventh day and then the first day of the week take that off as well? Um, And I would say no. And someone would say, well, wait a minute, Damon, isn't it the law of God? It's in the Ten Commandments. It's not like it's one of those weird commandments about selling your daughter into slavery. You know, it's, it's one of the ten basic commandments. And how can you simply say that we are not bound by the commandment? It is the law of God. But like the tenth commandment, you know the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. It is not something that is to be enforced by outside parties. And there's more. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let somebody say, you broke the Sabbath. You've broken the law of God. I would argue that the Sabbath has been set aside along with other religious holidays from the Old Testament, like Passover, Pentecost, the Day of Atonement. You say, well, wait a minute. Let's go back before the Ten Commandments to the, day, the week of creation, and we see the seventh day is to be a day of rest. Or what are we supposed to do with that? I'm not saying that we do away with the Sabbath. What I'm saying is that the purpose behind the Sabbath is what we need to hold on to. And that is, it is to be a time of rest. We need to rest. We need to acknowledge that we are dependent upon God. Why do we need to rest? Because first of all, we are made for it. We weren't made to go 24-7. We're not made for endless work without rest. We are dependent. We are finite. We are limited. And therefore, there needs to be a time when we step back when we rest from the work that we are doing. But secondly, I think rest is important because in many ways it should humble us. It should humble us for us to see that in fact the world keeps on working even when we are not. It's like going to sleep at night. In many ways, going to sleep at night is an act of faith. You trust that while you are basically unconscious, the world will keep working. In the same way, when we rest from our work, we step back and we say, that's fine. Things will keep going. The world does not depend upon my work for its continued existence. We must trust God. Our sufficiency comes from him, not from our own work. And so when we rest, we are saying, I trust God. That God, in fact, will take care of me and provide for me. And I think when we rest, we show ourselves to be made in the image of God. Again, God's rest is different than ours, but he did take the seventh day off. There was that day of intermission, and we who are made in his image should do the same. There should be this sense of rest. Um, Animals don't have a Sabbath, but humans do. And I would argue finally that when we observe the Sabbath, our humanity is deepened. We reaffirm, I am a human being. I'm made in the image of God, 
and I need to rest. I need to rest. Having dealt with the matter of the Sabbath, now Nehemiah has to deal with the issue of intermarriage with pagan peoples. Look, if you would, at verse number 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we, now, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. We've seen this in, in Ezra. This was the issue that Ezra faced. He's the second wave of exiles, and that was 14 years before Nehemiah came, and then Nehemiah is there 12 years, and then he's gone for a period of time. So it's almost a generation past that Ezra had to deal with this problem. And now that he comes back, he sees that the problem is still there. But the focus, I think, is very different uh, between Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I think in Ezra, the focus is that the people of God are to be a holy people. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. We also see that Nehemiah responds in a radically different way than Ezra does. Ezra pulls out his hair and beard, tears his clothes, uh, Nehemiah goes after the guys and beats them and pulls out their hair. Is this just a difference of personality? Could be between Ezra and Nehemiah. But I think there are other things going on. And this is speculation, so take it for what it's worth. But first of all, if we go back not that far in the book of Nehemiah, we see that Israel, the, the people in Judah, had made a promise. They had renewed the covenant. Do you remember that? after they had prayed the prayer of confession, and then they actually wrote it out and had their leaders sign it and said, we agree, we're going to renew the covenant. These are the things that we've been doing that we're not going to do anymore. And what did they say in the covenant? We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Well, it's quite clear they haven't been living up to the terms of the renewed covenant. I mean, we don't have to go back to Moses. We don't have to go back to Abraham. They just did this within a generation. They promised, they signed a document saying, we're going to keep these, these vows. We're, we promise that this is what we're going to do. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 13, we don't even have to go back to that. 
Verse 13, on that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the, the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Not that long ago. This is before Nehemiah comes back. And yet here we are, we find that people, these men, have married foreign women. Second reason I think that Nehemiah is so upset about this is it shows up, the results show up in the next generation. That is, half the children spoke the language of Ashdod and they don't speak the language of God's people. They don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And you might wonder, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal? So they're not bilingual. I mean, why get all upset about it? Well, the language of scripture that time was Hebrew. It is the language in which the law of God was written. And now you have an entire generation that is growing up who does not understand that language. They can't read it. They can't understand it. And it is taking them, I think, more than one step away from God in that they can no longer hear the word of God. Thirdly, as is, was the case in Ezra's time, it is the leadership the officials that take the lead in this unfaithfulness. Leadership is not merely political or religious. It is to be moral. They are to be leaders. They are to lead by example. And they are leading in a very bad way by their example by marrying these foreign women. Including, if you look at verse number 28, um, you have Jehoiada, uh, son of Elisha, the high priest. It's, he's a direct descendant of Aaron. It's very possible that he was going to be the next high priest. Well, he's married uh, the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. By the way, just thinking this through, one could make the case that foreign women don't want to marry peasants. Okay, If they're going to come into the people of Judah, they want to marry men of position, men of wealth. And so we should not be surprised... I mean, there's part of us that should be properly shocked that these leaders are breaking the covenant. But we shouldn't be surprised that pagan women want to marry men of position. They don't want to marry someone who can barely, you know, keep, keep himself alive, you know, working as a farmer. They want to marry someone who's got money. But lastly, and for me this is what cinches it, is what we read from Malachi. We saw when we were going through Ezra that there were two prophets, two of the minor prophets that lived during that time, Haggai and Zechariah. Well, there is also a prophet during the time of Nehemiah, and that is Malachi. And the issues that Nehemiah deals with, Malachi did as well. And this is what we read in Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith, a detestable thing that has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings and accepts or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, 
because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. It's the next generation. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. In reading this passage, one might be tempted to think that Malachi is dealing with two separate issues. One of divorce, breaking faith, abandoning the wife of your youth. And the other is intermarriage with pagans. I would suggest to you that they are in fact tied together. That is, that what's happening during the time of Nehemiah and Malachi is that these Jewish men are divorcing their Jewish wives, the wives of their youth, and they are now marrying pagan women. And this is why Nehemiah is so upset. They've broken faith with their wives, they've profaned the covenant, and they've married not a pagan woman, you'll notice that Malachi says, the daughter of a foreign god. This is why Nehemiah calls curses down on them. Remember, you have two options, blessing or cursing. Well, you're certainly not going to bless them for profaning the covenant. He calls down curses on them. What does Nehemiah do? Well, beyond the pulling of their hair, he makes them take an oath in God's name that they will not continue this practice. They will not give their daughters to pagan families. They will not take daughters from other families for their sons or for themselves. He reminds them of Solomon's example. And here I want to read a portion from 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. That's an Egyptian. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Solomon, who was said to have been the wisest man, was led astray. Solomon, who built the first great temple for God and prayed that magnificent prayer and the presence of God came in like a cloud and people were amazed at it. In his old age, he's led astray. He married foreign women and he even built altars to gods that demanded human sacrifice. Molech and Chemosh. How do you go from being loved by God and building this magnificent temple for God? God speaking to you toward the end of your life 
you're building altars for human sacrifice. Well, Nehemiah tells us, listen, it's the foreign women. And you're doing the exact same thing that Solomon did. And look, look at the mess we're in because of all of this. You need to stop doing this. Nehemiah refers to it as all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God. And then he picks a very specific person to pick on, and that is a descendant of Aaron, uh, and kicks him out, drives him away. And then Nehemiah prays, and should we be surprised? Verse number 29, Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And again, we might ask ourselves, is this an appropriate prayer? Um, why all the concern okay, that they've, they've defiled, they've desecrated? Well, you might remember, if you remember the book of Hebrews, that the Lord Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us. And what we see in the Old Testament is symbolic. It is, these are shadows of what is yet to come. And these people are messing it up left and right. They're completely destroying what Jesus, in fact, will fulfill. So, in a sense, it's like backward and forward. Backwards, they are breaking the covenant, the agreement, what God told Aaron. But looking ahead, they're also destroying um, that type that will be the Lord Jesus. By the way, we see Moses doing this as well. And this is why Moses doesn't go into the promised land. Do you remember the story? At one point they were out of water and God tells him, hit the rock and water comes out. Another time comes years later and there's, the people are complaining there's no water and God tells Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. Moses doesn't. He hits the rock again. And because of that, he doesn't get to go on the promised land because he destroys the type of the Lord Jesus who is smitten for our sins like the rock hitting or the rod hitting the rock. And then from that time on, we speak and we have forgiveness through the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have to be crucified over and over again. You don't have to hit the rock more than once. But Moses ruined that. And for that, he doesn't get to go in. He doesn't get to go in. And so Nehemiah, I don't, he doesn't even know yet about the Messiah. But they're breaking the covenant. They're profaning the office of the priest. And this is unacceptable. And he prays to God that God, in fact, would remember how they have defiled the priestly office. And we certainly do remember that they defiled the priestly office. But he's not done. He does more than pray. If you look at verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. There are three statements here with regard to Nehemiah's reorganizing. I purified and cleansed. I assigned or established Each one will have his own task. And lastly, I made provisions or I provided for contributions of wood. This is for the wood for the sacrifices at the temple. And then we find at the very end that once again, Nehemiah prays, Remember me with favor, O my God. Here in this last chapter, we find that the reforms that had been, re- had been enacted earlier, 
need to be reenacted because people have forgotten. They renewed the covenant, they prayed this magnificent prayer of confession, and then years later we find that they're doing what they had done before. They failed to live up to what they promised. But lest we be too harsh, I think we would find ourselves guilty of the same thing. Remember years ago, uh, when the Troxels were here, Mike Troxel and I were talking, we were going through the book of Judges, and you find the pattern uh, in Judges. Uh, And by the way, Robert was asking about this last week, the fifth R is rest, because rest is important. But after a period of being delivered, after a generation, we find that the people of Israel go back into idolatry again. And Mike and I were talking about, yeah, for us it's not 40 years, it's, it's not even 40 minutes sometimes. We find ourselves going back to the things that we used to do before. I think that Nehemiah is important to us because we realize we need each other to keep each other accountable. And so, even though it sounds like he's doing it all, he is in fact doing it in in conjunction with them, that he is making them live up to the terms of the covenant that he agreed to. And then his book closes with these words, Remember with favor, O my God. We saw this last week. We looked at the whole business of these prayers. That God's remembering is God acting toward us with grace, with favor. And it is sustaining us with favor and with grace. Our prayers are not there to inform God as though somehow we could tell God something he doesn't know. And our actions as God's people are not morally or ethically neutral. And God's remembering is not neutral as well. Should we not, like Nehemiah, At the end of a day, literally or not, the end of a project, that we come to a realization that we need God, that he's been with us every step of the way. And we say to him, this is what I did. This is what I did. It's not a prayer of pride. It can be. It shouldn't be. But a prayer of humility and saying, You sustained me. You created me. It is because of you that I've been able to do this. Because, as I mentioned last week, do we ask for God's favor? Some people are uncomfortable with that. Why should we ask God to bless us? Well, because God either blesses us or he curses us. There's no middle ground. There's no like, if you wish. It's not love, hate, and like in between. God either blesses us, he either remembers us, or he does not remember. And to not be remembered is to not exist. So at the end of the day, we can say to God, remember what I have done. And at the same time say, do not remember my sins. They no longer exist. But that we, by God's grace, are sustained. I like the book of Nehemiah. I was hesitant. I went through Nehemiah years ago. And some people have seen in Nehemiah a great administrator. That this is a man who knows how to organize. And so we should learn from him in that regard. I'm not opposed to that. I think there's much, much more to this man. He's a man of prayer. The book opens with him praying because he hears of what's happened to Jerusalem. And it closes with him praying. He is dependent upon God. We should be as well. That's why the Sabbath is important. It's a day of rest, a day of saying, yeah, 
I can step back from whatever I'm doing, not necessarily for an entire day, for a period of time to say, the world will keep going. Uh, my office will keep running. This project will keep going with or without me. And I trust in God. I rest in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, I suppose it's part of human nature that we uh, think that the world desperately needs us. That things just won't be the same if we're not here. And in truth, they won't be. But it will continue to go. Continue to function. Because all of creation is dependent upon you. It is the Lord Jesus who sustains all things in heaven and on earth. And so when we acknowledge our humanity, when we acknowledge that we are made in your image, when we acknowledge our trust in you by resting, we are being obedient. We're doing what you've called us to do. Help us to trust you as we go through our lives, engaged with various things. May we look to you in faith. And as with Nehemiah, pray and say, remember what I have done. Sustain me. Sustain us by your grace. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. And again, I pray as we face uh, harsh weather in the coming days that you would keep each of us safe. Keep us in good health. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your tender mercies toward us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.